This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Dr. Max Holmes is Deputy Director and Senior Scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. He studies rivers around the world, leading the Arctic Great Rivers Observatory, the Global Rivers Observatory, and the Cape Cod Rivers Observatory. Max is a lifelong angler who's thrilled to be bringing his scientific and fly fishing passions together with science on the fly. In this episode of Anchored, we sit down to discuss the organization and all of the fantastic work that it's doing. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and its incredible pheasant hunting. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you beg. Hunting is our shared legacy, and everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to HuntTheGreatestSD.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. Again, that's www.HuntTheGreatestSD.com. Yeah, I mean, I started off as a as an angler, I guess, and um, growing up in northern Michigan, I would go out like with my dad and friends and sort of trolling for lake trout and salmon on Lake Michigan, which I, I enjoyed. But, you know, as a five year old kid sitting in a in a boat trolling around all day, that would get kind of old. And but as soon as we hit 
land, I'd, you know, I'd take off with by myself or a friend or something and, and go mess around in streams trying to catch fish and flip over rocks and, you know, see what was growing there. And that, that's what I really loved to do. Um, that was, you know, that wasn't fly fishing at that point. It was um, probably, I guess I was probably eight or nine years old the first time I, you know, sort of in quotes fly fished. And I, I don't know where I got it, but I got a few dry flies and there was this tree that fell down into the Boardman River in Traverse City, Michigan, if you know where that is. And it's a pretty cool river, the Boardman River, but this tree had fallen down there. And I, you know, I would climb out on that tree and I was probably fishing with worms or something, catching trout off that, that tree. And somehow I got my hands on some flies, probably Adams, you know, some dry fly and tied it onto my spinning rod. And I, I can like, I don't have that many memories, but I distinctly remember just dropping this fly, this dry fly, um, directly below me as I'm out on this tree uh, under the surface of water and, you know, trout just engulfing and it just blew me away, you know? Um, and so that was my, yeah, my first experience fly fishing was um, tying a fly onto a spinning rod. Um, I don't know. Then I, um, you know, I, at some point I took a fly tying class. I was probably 13 years old and I was building rods and I was just obsessive about fishing and interested in biology and everything else. And as a kid, um, we had this family friend that I didn't actually meet until I was in college, you know, quite a bit later, but, um, he was a limnologist. He was a friend of my mom and my uncle and they grew up together. And a limnologist is a freshwater ecologist. And so he's a stream ecologist and, um, kind of what I knew about him, what, what resonated with me is he studied trout streams in Montana. So like, I knew that was a possibility as a kid. It's like, okay, this sounds, science sounds pretty cool if you can do that. And, um, so that had a, big influence on me i think knowing that that kind of thing was possible fast forward a little bit i guess uh or, or a lot i guess when i was 15 we moved to texas and uh, you know i i still stayed pretty uh obsessed with fishing there then yeah going to college i i you know i i studied biology i went my freshman year i went to university of colorado um majoring in biology and you know thinking i do ecology and you know thinking about fish and rivers and everything else and um i don't know somewhere i, I did well my freshman year you know and everyone at that point i think there was some expectation if you did well in school like in your biology why aren't you pre-med so everyone kept asking me why aren't you pre-med and um so somewhere along the line, I started saying I was pre-med. I, I transferred to the University of Texas. And for a couple of years there, I said I was pre-med um, for, I guess I was probably trying to impress somebody at that point. But um, And then my senior year, I actually took my first ecology class. And I just absolutely fell in love with that and said, you know, what the hell am I thinking about pre-med? I want to do, this is what I want to do. And, um, and, and still, it wasn't that clear of a path. I, I The guy who talked, this I taught the ecology class. His name was Eric Pianca, kind of this ornery old ecologist guy who studied desert lizards of all things. So um, I had, I got, you know, I got interested in that. And actually right after I graduated from college, I was going to go to India with him to be sort of his field assistant studying desert lizards in the, in the great Thar desert. And um, sort of at the last minute, the Indian government didn't approve our visas. I think there was some unrest there or something. So um, as a backup, I had applied to a, um, a program at the University of Michigan Biological 
station for that summer, a, a research program. So I ended up going there, um, doing some research, taking a course on stream ecology. So it, you know, that kind of got me back to what I somewhat jokingly said I wanted to do when I was, you know, eight years old or something like that. So I spent a summer there, went out on a Korean fishing boat in the Bering Sea that fall um, as a kind of a working for NOAA just to get some, you know, more life experiences, which that was definitely one of them being on a, it was a 350 foot Korean fishing boat with 150 Koreans and me. So I, I won't get into too many of those stories, but that was a neat one. Um, and then I went back to, uh, I was living in Austin, Texas at that point. So I went back to Austin. I was basically sleeping on a friend's couch thinking that I'd bum around in Austin for, you know, the next nine months or something before I started a PhD program somewhere. That, that was fun for a while. It got a little bit old. Uh, and out of the, I got some letter from the University of Michigan talking about uh, a master's program that I could essentially start um, in the spring semester. So in, in uh, January, I guess, and I probably got that letter maybe in November. And so what the heck, you know, that, that sounds better than sleeping on this couch for another nine months. So I ended up doing a master's program at University of Michigan um, in, in biology and, and ecology. And then, and that was also just a way for me to figure out a little bit more about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to do for a PhD program. And it was, you know, from there, I decided to apply to a PhD program in, in stream ecology and stream chemistry and went to Arizona State University to do that. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a, a, a Kind of a long answer, and probably even an incomplete answer to your questions because it still doesn't quite say how I got to where I am now in, in, in Woods Hole. But yeah, it's, you know, a bunch of circuitous route to kind of end up where I am now. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where you are now because I, I'm fascinated by this program. So let's talk about science on the fly and the history behind it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I'll start just by saying where I work. So I work at a place called the Woodwell Climate Research Center. That's in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And I've been here since 2005. I actually came to Woods Hole right after I finished my PhD, which was in 1995. And I thought I'd be you know, here for a couple of years and then move on to be a professor somewhere. Um, I initially came to a place called the Marine Biological Laboratory. As a postdoctoral scientist, I ended up staying at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole from 2000, uh, from 95 until 2005. And then in 2005, I moved to what was then called the Woods Hole Research Center. And now just a couple of years ago, we changed our name to the Woodwell Climate Research Center. So as that name suggests, we're a place that focuses on climate change. We have people that kind of work around the world on, on, on forests in the Arctic, uh, do a lot of sort of like satellite remote sensing global scale stuff and try to connect it to policy to try to put the brakes on climate change. My own research focuses on rivers and um, for, you know, for a long time, I've sort of worked on rivers around the world. I work on rivers in the Arctic, some big ones in the tropics and try to set up sampling where we look at the chemistry of rivers to figure out sampling locations on a river sample over the seasons and then over the years look at the chemistry, how it changes over time, and then try to figure out what that's telling us about changes in the rivers and their, and their watersheds. So I've worked on kind of, I continue to work on the big Arctic rivers, the Yukon River, the Mackenzie River, uh, big Siberian Arctic rivers. Uh, we also work on the Amazon and the Congo and the Mekong and a bunch of other ones. And this is all with collaborators, um, 
really around the world uh, for these studies. But um, yeah, what I like to do is get these sort of time series sampling going, sample rivers year after year, track the change, and then figure out how the Earth is changing, how the rivers are changing, and then try to, uh, you know, use that inf information hopefully to uh, enact wise policies about, uh, you know, combating the change that we're seeing. So um, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money to do these studies that I've mentioned. And, you know, if I'm uh, not on a river, if I'm on a river, I'm either there as a scientist or I'm there as an angler. And I've always thought there must be some way to bring these communities together. You know, and everywhere you go, there are uh, fly fishers out there um, sharing the same passion about rivers, protecting rivers, and um, just sort of coming at it from a different direction. So I've always, you know, God, there's got to be a way to bring these communities together to help advance the science, help make a difference with rivers. So I guess it was about five years ago. Um, I started to spend some time with my family uh, in Telluride, Colorado. My sister-in-law and her husband have a house there. It's a, you know, if you've been to Telluride, you do anything you can to figure out a way to get back there. So I was fortunate, really lucky to have, you know, some family connections out there. So we started spending time in Telluride. Um, and as any, you know, angler does, if there's a fly shop in the town that you're visiting, you spend some time there. So I do that, got to know the guys who own Telluride Angler. And again, you know, they, they share the same passion I share about rivers and the fishing of the rivers and, and our planet and, and, and the same desire to do whatever they can to, to protect it. So, you know, I learned more about their work. They learned about my science. It was also around that same time, um, at a conference in Telluride, I met a guy named Johnny Lacoque and he's the founder and owner of fish pond and just this awesome passionate guy who's um you know he's not trying to get rich in, in his business he's trying to make a difference so again you know kind of a kindred spirit in that sense and um we got to know each other we got to become friends um and and sort of with the guys at telluride angler and, and some others just kicked around ideas about how to bring these communities together to advance the science and, and make a difference so it was back I guess 2019 is when the idea for Science on a Fly really uh, started to get off the ground a little bit. We, um, with Telluride Angler, they started sampling um, eight locations, rivers around Telluride, places that they go out to, places that they guide on. So they were sampling every two weeks, collecting water samples, basically filling a 60 mil bottle uh, uh, with water. Um, pretty simple protocol that we developed. You filter it, you freeze it, and then periodically send it back to our labs here in Cape Cod for chemical analysis. So they started doing that. It seemed to be working, you know, that we kind of worked out the kinks of the protocol, streamlined it a bit. Um, and then we wanted, we said, well, you know, maybe we can expand this a little bit. So we got some funding from Patagonia to try to expand it to some additional fly shops in Colorado initially and get some you know, more people involved and didn't really know, you know if that would work, but um, they they funded it and it, it did, you know, it was, it turned out not to be hard to get additional people involved and passionate about this. So, so that worked, we then got some additional philanthropic funding and it just took off. And, you know, we kind of went from, well, nothing in the middle of 2019 to maybe, you know, 10 sites in late 2020 to now it's, um, over 300 sites that are being sampled monthly, over 100 volunteers. It's in 39 states, um, six countries. And, and you know, we had to just sort of, actually several months ago, we just had to slam the brakes on and slow the growth so we didn't sort of outpace the, the funding that we had to keep it going. But it's been, yeah, it's been super exciting just um, how 
this idea that, again, you know, we initially weren't sure if we were the only ones in the world who would be excited about it, but we found that, yeah, I mean, as, as you know, you know, the fly fishing community is passionate and they, they want to do what they can do to help. And yeah, and this is something that seems to get them excited. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Besides just water temperature, what else are you measuring? So the main thing that, I mean, it, mainly it's, it's water chemistry. The, the, you know, the bulk of the work is these 60 mil water samples that get sent back to our labs for chemical analysis. And what we're measuring in those are what we call nutrients. So nitrate, ammonium, phosphate, and silica. We also measure dissolved organic carbon and total dissolved nitrogen. So those are some kind of just fundamental uh, chemicals that are naturally in water that tell you a lot about the well, they tell you about the chemistry of the, the river, obviously, but they, you can also use those to change, uh, to track change over time in rivers. So they're biologically important compounds. Uh, they, you know, they vary seasonally and then they can vary over time. And when they vary over time, that could be a, you know, a red flag of, hey, something's going on here. There, you know, there's some pollution source, there's some wastewater, there's permafrost thaw in the Arctic, whatever it might be. It might be a signal of climate change. It can, you know, it, it gives you a signal that something's happening. Then you have to dig deep, deeper to try to figure out, you know, what the cause of that change is and then perhaps what to do about it. Um, you know, in addition to the chemistry that I just described, we also are measuring water temperature. So that's water temperature when the samples are collected. And one thing that we're starting to do that I'm really excited about is to put some uh, data loggers out into the rivers that will measure water temperature. You can set them different ways, but in general, we're having them measure water temperature every 15 minutes. So those, you know, we'll get, that's a super important um, record, actually. I mean, it's, it's kind of the easiest thing to measure, but it's also one of the most powerful measurements you can make in a river uh, that you know, in this, the context of climate change, it's the most direct link to climate, right? The, the temperature of the river. And, you know, as anyone who kind of fishes for trout knows, the temperature is super important. And a lot of these places are warming up. And that is a threat to these, you know, these fish that we love and these, these ecosystems that we care so much about. Can you give me an example of how chemistry will indicate that there are changes? Yeah, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, so one, say nitrates are really important nutrient in a in a in a river that doesn't have lots of impacts from human humans activities you generally think that nitrate concentrations are going to be quite low so i mentioned we sample um or telluride angler samples eight sites around telluride so telluride's sort of high elevation in the mountains not a lot of people there not a not a great deal of development you'd expect you know the system have fairly low nitrate concentrations and for the most part it it does you know that's what we that's what we saw but one site jumped out as having much higher nitrate concentration much higher phosphate concentration so all right what's going on there you know what what's what's driving that and um so yeah essentially we i mean the first thing i did when i saw that was get, got on google earth and started to look you know what's upstream right i mean that's the beauty of rivers is what you see in the chemistry is a function of stuff happening upstream so you can define that area you know where that water is coming from it's it's you know it's, it's the watershed upstream so you look in that watershed and what's upstream not so far upstream of where we were sampling in some of those high concentrations was a wastewater treatment plant um and you know what what is what what do they do they i mean they're treating wastewater they're then you know they're clean they're getting the pathogens out and depending on the type of wastewater treatment plant. They may also be taking the nutrients out or they may not be. And then they're discharging that treated water back into the stream. So I think in that case, 
um, we still need to do some more work on this, but um, you know, that I think is probably what's driving that pattern that we're seeing in the river. And the hope is that, you know, and I think there are plans that they're going to improve their wastewater treatment facility and, and we'll be able to see if in fact that's in, in improving the water quality in the river and, you know, consequently the, the health of the, the river ecosystem. Another one that we, um, are really interested in. I, I mentioned we do a lot of work in the Arctic and I've been working in different parts of the Arctic for over 20 years and we're just starting to get some work going there as part of science on the fly. But one of the reasons that we're so interested in the Arctic in a context of climate change is because of permafrost in the Arctic, frozen ground in the Arctic. And that's interesting because it contains vast amounts of carbon, organic matter that's been locked away for hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of years. But as the earth warms, the Arctic's warming even more and it starts to release some of that carbon, mobilize that carbon. It can be then um, used as an energy source by bacteria. And the, the byproduct of that is the release of carbon dioxide and methane. So that's really bad news because there's um, a lot more carbon locked up in permafrost uh, than is in the atmosphere right now. If you start to mobilize some of that carbon, put it into the atmosphere, it leads to more warming and that can be a self-reinforcing cycle. So yeah, here at the Woodwell Climate Research Center, we work a lot on that issue. Um, rivers um, can be important there because again, we can use the chemistry of the river to track changes in a watershed. And there we're looking specifically at, at different forms of carbon and concentrations of carbon in the rivers and, and wondering or you know anticipating that we're gonna see changes uh, in, in those things in the in the chemistry of some of those Arctic rivers. So another place that we're starting to do uh, some real focused work as part of Science on a Fly is some rivers in Western Alaska that are um, right at the Southern extent of permafrost. There's permafrost there now, frozen ground there now, but um, unfortunately it's likely to be on the way out. So, and these rivers have had very, really quite surprisingly little, or maybe not surprisingly given how remote they are, but not that much science done on them. So we're trying to get these um, these records of you know river chemistry, river temperature, and river depths. We also have put some um, depth sensors out in some of the rivers and um, to get to get those records going to watch how these rivers may be changing and again, um, use that information to hopefully um, motivate some actions to protect the rivers. And, and yeah, they're also just amazing rivers in Western Alaska that, um, you know, it's, it's not mainly scientists out there studying those rivers. It's mainly anglers out there floating down those rivers and doing, you know, just some amazing fishing there. So that's certainly one of the perks of the job that we get to go to some amazing places to, as scientists, but, you know, we all generally would have a fly rod in tow as well. Right. No doubt. Um, I think I give government and corporations just way too much credit. And I've just always assumed that every single river in the world would already have had their chemistry, you know, have had samples taken so that we had some sort of baseline. Is that not the case? That is most definitely not the case. I mean, there are different government agencies that do some remarkable work, but by no means are they everywhere. They're, you know, they're in the more populated places there. But yeah, if you go to some of these remote locations, there's just, they're not there. And so, yeah. So if you want to have that information, you've got to go get it. You've got to get it going. So that's, yeah, that's essentially what we try to do in a lot of places is get these records going um, where they don't exist. In some cases, we're working in rivers and watersheds as part of Science on the Fly, where there is a lot of amazing scientists that science that has been done and amazing records that have already been, you know, started and so on. So we're just adding information, additional inf 
information in those cases. But in a lot of cases, we're at places where, yeah, there is no um, previous record. There is no ongoing record that would allow us to track how things are changing over time. Right. Wow. You guys are setting the new ba- the baseline, really. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Establish a, you need to have the baseline in, in order to be able to detect detect change. So as far as prevention goes, how can you react to things like Didymo and some of these other, you know, plagues that we see take over river systems? Is that something that you can see happening and monitor or is it just once it's there, you're shit out of luck? That, you know, I, I don't have a great answer for that specific example. I, I, you know, it's not an area that I have some expertise in, I think, but the little bit I do know is keep it out. Once it's there, it's, you know, you've got a mess on your hands. So that's a case where prevention goes a long ways. What about Didymo? Is that something that you guys have seen in any of the rivers that you watch? Yeah, we've certainly seen it. Our focus has not been, you know, the, the actual science that we're doing as part of Science on the Fly is focusing on the chemistry and, you know, the, and the temperature, um, because that's the kind of thing that we can do really broadly. If we started, I mean, there's lots of other interesting stuff that we could do, let's say, you know, sampling the fish, for example, or, or the macroinvertebrates. That gets really expensive and really hard, and it takes a lot of specialized training to do that. So we're focusing on the the water samples because we can come up with a sampling protocol that we can pretty quickly train um, interested people to do, send them everything they need to do that without having to have any really, you know, specialized training that would be necessary for, uh, you know, doing some of the other kinds of science that we, that could also be interesting. Right. Well, back to the fish for a second. Can we talk a little bit about otoliths? Are you aware of the chemistry and how that works with otoliths? Yeah. Can yes. we explain that to Yeah, let me think about how to explain that to people. It's not um, so otoliths are essentially ear bones in fish, and they, I mean, they're bones, and they have like a tree has annual growth rings. Otoliths have annual growth, and they they incorporate um, a chemical signature of the environment in in the annual growth of that bone, that otolith. So there are studies that look at um, the chemistry of the otoliths, how it changes over time, they can use that to think to get information about where the fish was, or the diet of the fish, or the growth rate of the fish, all different kinds of information about that. This is not an area that I can speak with any great expertise. I've never been involved in any of that science. But yeah, it's, it's an amazing, uh, it's, it's an example of, uh, of how a fish essentially is sampling its environment and you can use the information in the the growth rings of the otolith the ear bone of the otolith to learn something about how it's um you know how its environment has changed over time i know with steelhead you can see where that or you can track the originating river of that steelhead by looking at the chemical composition is that do you want to can we talk a little bit about that because i think that's something that a lot of people don't know yeah so again it's you know the 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 Otolith, the ear bone, is capturing, incorporating the chemistry of its environment. Different rivers, different tributaries have unique chemical signatures, and that's incorporated, in, again, to, into the otolith of the fish, and you can use that information to figure out where those fish are from. Yeah, it's just this amazing thing. I mean, as I, I know I know of your uh, love and expertise with steelhead, and it's, you know, you think of the life cycle of a fish like that. They any any kind of uh, salmon, for example, you know, that 
born in a river somehow, you know, and in some cases makes its way hundreds and thousands of miles from wherever it was born out to the ocean, spends some amount of time in the ocean, a year or two, three, four years or whatever, and then makes it back to that that place where it was born. It's, I mean, anyone who's not in awe of a salmon or a steelhead is, I don't know what they're, I can't relate to that person if you're not in awe of those fish. <laughs> right, no doubt. Now, this is probably a pretty obvious question, but it's one that I genuinely don't know. Um, what what is What makes up the nutrients in in most of these rivers, is it the leaves from trees? Is it soil? Is it is it rocks? No, it's a it's a great question, and I, and you had a bunch of great answers there. Um, it depends on sort of the nutrient where its sources are. A lot of it's coming from the watershed. So uh, one of the things it's not really a nutrient, but one of the things we analyze a lot is dissolved organic carbon. So if you think of uh, you know you make tea, you tea leaves, you drop it into that, you know, tea leaves in the hot water and you get this brown color. That's dissolved organic carbon. That's material that leached from the leaf. The same thing happens in rivers. It's the, it's the vegetation that's growing beside the river and in the watershed. That material leaches from it. It could be dissolved organic carbon. It could be dissolved nutrients, makes its way into the river. And so that's, so a lot of the chemical compounds that you see in the river are stuff that's leached out of the, the, plants and animals um, in the watershed. Other things are uh, dissolving from rocks, some of the anions and cations. It, it may be a rock source as opposed to a vegetation source. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's all different things, actually, uh, different locations, different sources of, of nutrients to rivers. They can also be um, direct human sources. Um, certainly in a lot of places you have um, elevated nutrient concentrations in rivers that can be traced to fertilizer that may be on people's lawns. It may be agricultural fertilizers that make their way into rivers. Uh, wastewater uh, is another big source that can contribute nutrients to rivers. So like the Mississippi River is a big example. And I think many people have heard the story about the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that's created by nutrients flowing in from the Mississippi River that stimulates algal productivity in the Gulf of Mexico, that that material then decomposes, consumes oxygen, drives oxygen concentrations down in the Gulf and causes all kinds of problems there. But fundamentally, that one is primarily driven by fertilizers, you know, put on agricultural crops in the Mississippi River watershed. So, you know, corn and soy are uh, massive crops there. Lots of fertilizer gets put on those crops. It's not all used by the crops. Some of it makes its way into the river causing problems in the river, but then also causing problems um, in the ocean waters uh, into which the rivers flow. That same thing happens on Cape Cod, where I am. Nitrogen is a big problem in the coastal zone here. So if you don't know Cape Cod, you know it's kind of sort of really nice beaches and estuaries and fishing and everything else. Nitrogen's a big issue. Um, in the estuaries, the productivity, the plant growth, the algal growth in the estuaries is limited by nitrogen. So if you add more nitrogen, you get more plant growth and algal growth, and that can lead to kind of all kinds of problems in the estuaries. Coming up, Max and I continue our conversation. Thank you again to South Dakota for making this episode possible. Hunting brings us together. It's a human tradition. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you beg. It's our shared legacy. And while pheasant hunting has always been a part of South Dakota's story, they're making the next chapter even greater. 
welcoming all types of hunters and boosting sportswomen's voices. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. You'll also find public land maps, information about the seasons, incredible pheasant recipes, and resources for beginners. Again, that's www.huntthegreatestsd.com. So the rivers are one of the main sources of nitrogen to these estuaries that's causing the problem. And the source of nitrogen to the rivers, here it's not mainly fertilizer as it is in the Mississippi River. It's mainly wastewater. It's it's septic systems. It's, you know, what people are flushing down their toilet that uh, um, the septic systems do a good job of removing the pathogens. They, the standard septic system does a terrible job of removing the nitrogen, the nitrate. So that makes its way into the groundwater. These streams are groundwater fed. It makes its way into the rivers. Causes can cause some problems in the rivers here, but it causes even bigger problems in the nitrogen limited estuaries. So yeah, we're also doing the similar work on on these you know small rivers or streams on Cape Cod and tracking how their chemistry is changing over time. And you know hopefully that's going to provide incentive to nitrogen gets a lot of attention here, but it's still we don't we can't we haven't we can't really say whether the concentrations in the river are going up or down over time because we don't have those long term records. So that's what we're starting to do here if we've started to do here as well what is the common denominator between all of the prolific rivers you know every state and every place has got that one handful or that one area of really prolific rivers do you guys have some sort of determination there by prolific you mean in in what sense in in the, the fishing in the rivers or bug life bug life yeah what is a common denominator I guess there's got to be a good food source. There's got to be good water quality, certainly. I mean, it depends on the kind of bug life you're talking about. But, um, you know, a, a lot of the insects that fly fishers are interested in are really sensitive to water quality. Uh, mayflies, for example, if you don't have good water quality, you're not going to have many, many mayflies. So, yeah, if you, um, certainly just good water quality. Uh, is key to the bug life, which then, you know, if you don't have the good bug life, you're probably not going to have the good trout populations or whatever else that that you're interested in. Yeah, so it's not like one um, common denominator. Yeah, no, there's not a secret nutrient that I can think of. It's, um, yeah, you just have to have a healthy ecosystem, a healthy environment to support the fish and everything else that, that we care so much about. Here's another silly question. I had read a bunch of books from the late 1800s and early 1900s, and they have all these sorts of crazy theories about oxygen. And I've never really known who to ask, but I can ask you. Oxygen obviously matters when it comes to water, but is it true? (laughs) Is this early 1900 theory true that a, a river that has a lot of boulders and is broken and fast has more oxygen in it? Well, first of all, let me say I'm super impressed that you read a lot of books from the late 1800s and early 1900s. That's it was not a lot of people can pro- say that. Project. <laughs> it was a project, yeah. a long so, project. Regardless, you did it. So kudos to you for that. Um, yeah, I mean, so if you have a turbulent river, uh, that's going to equilibrate the 
the gas concentrations, oxygen and other gases with the concentration in the environment. Um, the concentration in the environment of oxygen is constant. It's relatively high. It's enough for us to breathe and survive. Um, in a river, you can have a situation where the concentration of oxygen is higher than atmospheric or lower than atmospheric. When you have a lot of plant growth, a lot of algal growth in the river, that's going to drive oxygen up because photosynthesis is generating oxygen. When the flip side, respiration, the decomposition of that plant material in a river is going to drive oxygen concentration down. And that's where you can run into problems um, for fish when you get those low oxygen concentrations. So if you had a river with lots of boulders and lots of turbulence and lots of, of decomposition that otherwise would pull the oxygen concentration down, that turbulence would equilibrate the concentration with the atmosphere and you could avoid those low oxygen concentration. So that was a kind of a, a long answer perhaps, but yeah, I, I think what you were reading back in the late 1800s and early 1900s in, in that sense makes, makes some sense. The other thing that impacts oxygen concentration is temperature. So um, in warmer rivers, you, warmer water temperature can hold lower, less, lower amounts of oxygen. And that gets to be super important for trout. Some trout require cold temperatures, high oxygen concentrations. As rivers start to warm, you can, they, can, they can hold less oxygen and that can, be, um, that can be stressful or fatal to some trout species. Yeah, right. It's funny looking back now, you know, we're in, what are we in? 2021. Wow. Looking back over a hundred years ago, they hadn't factored in or the, re, you know, the books I had read, they hadn't factored in the organic, you know, decomposition and stuff like that. But yeah. <laughs> Waddington was trying to say that the rain had a, a lot to do with it and that with how fast the rain was dropping, the oxygen was being zapped from the rain as it was falling and then therefore hitting the river and entering the river and removing oxygen. He had all of these crazy theories. It's been it's been over a decade since I've read his books. But um, yeah, we've just come a long way, haven't we? We have, you know, and that seems like a crazy idea to me. Um, but that's kind of the way science works, right? Somebody comes up with an idea, and if it doesn't pan out, it gets relegated to the history books, and the good ideas stick around. So it is an iterative process where we learn more and more all the time, and we kind of build on what others have learned. But um, you know, the good ideas that the, the the good ideas stick around. So, what's the long term plan with you guys? There's going to be a lot of science accumulating over the next 10, 15, 20 years. What's the, what's the plan? And also, where do you store all? I've, I've just got so many questions about the process, but I'll get there uh, after, after this question. Yeah, I mean, long-term, well, I'll say, I won't even say long-term, I'll say short-term. We'll, we'll continue to grow. We'll have an increased emphasis on, you know, not just the chemistry, but just water temperature as a key measurement. So getting some sensors out there, um, uh, measuring water temperature. We also there are kind of two big things that, you know, there's, there's the science that we're trying to do, and then it, there's sort of outreach or connecting it to policy. So we want to tell the story. We want to talk to people like you and, and tell people about what we're doing and get the word out about, about the importance of the science, about the importance of rivers, what people can do to help protect the rivers. Um, so really connecting what we're doing to policy is super important. We, you know, we do that I know we have a project website, scienceonafly.org, where we talk about the science. We have newsletters, we have Instagram, all that kind of normal stuff. Um, we also want to spend more time 
talking to policymakers. So, you know, we haven't done this yet, but I can see, you know, a visit to Washington, D.C. and talk to, talk to people there. And I mean, one of the awesome things about the fly fishing community, I guess I'll say it's awesome, uh, is that um, it's a shared passion, but it's all different politics, right? Um, and I think a lot of times people kind of get in their camps and they just talk to people who think the same way that they do politically. And it's hard to kind of expand your own thinking or expand anyone else's thinking when you're doing that. But fly fishing, again, there's this shared passion, but politically it's really diverse and, uh, and all different views about climate change and so on. And yet the shared passion for the environment. So that's, that's one thing that excites me about science on a fly. We can talk to people from, uh, you know, different backgrounds and different political um, persuasions and, and, and talk to them about the importance of, of, uh, you know, of rivers and the environmental quality and climate change and hopefully move the needle on some of those things in, in ways that we wouldn't if we were just kind of in a, in a narrower tent that already sort of thought the same way about some of these issues. Yeah, I think whether you believe in climate change or not, it's, uh, it's collecting samples and collecting this data is a win-win. I just can't see anybody being against taking a sample of, from the water. Yeah, that's right. No one's and, being hurt. Uh, you know, Fish aren't being and, hurt. The vegans can't be upset. PETA can't be upset. Yeah. I just can't see anyone getting upset. No, that's right. And, you know, uh, I mean, on, on the issue of climate change, like I, I don't like to think about believing in climate change. It's it's not a belief system. You know, it's 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 science, right? And um, I, uh, well, earlier on we were talking about kind of you know my history and um, where I've lived and all that kind of stuff. One thing I didn't talk about is. I mean, I did mention I was kind of obsessed about fishing that whole way, but, um, you know, I went to high school in Texas and, uh, went, this was back in 1983, right before my senior year of high school, a friend and I hopped in a Honda Civic station wagon outside of Houston, Texas and drove to Montana, um, drove to Yellowstone and basically spent six weeks sleeping in a Honda Civic in front of the West Yellowstone library and um, fishing all, like all we did all day, every day fish sometimes it was in the park a lot of times it was outside of the park on the madison river and so i you know i just absolutely fell in love with the madison river at that point um i hadn't been back to the madison river so that was in 1983 i hadn't been back there until this past summer actually september of this year uh, which was kind of a really cool thing that's 38 years later um i brought the same fly rod that i built when i was like 14 years old this old loomis blank i had so even some flies I tied from, from that time I brought with me on that trip. Um, um, but yeah, aside from that kind of walk down memory lane aspect of it, what kind of just blows my mind. I mean, people weren't thinking about climate change, even scientists, I don't think were, you know, 38 years ago, it wasn't really on the agenda. Now rivers in Montana are getting shut down because they're too warm. You, you know, it, like that just blows my mind. So, you know, that's climate change. So, you know, people can argue. I mean, people can argue about whatever they want to argue about. Um, and, and you can argue about the cause, although I think I'd love to talk to you if you have a different idea about the cause than I do. Maybe we can. Yeah, I like I'd like to have that conversation. But if you're a if you're a fly fisher in Montana and, and the river that you've been fishing in forever is getting shut down now because the temperatures are too warm it's hard to argue that climate change is not happening that like that just blows me away that you know this 
Montana streams are getting shut down because it's too warm. Climate change, this is what we've been saying is going to happen. It's happening. It's going to get a lot worse, I'm afraid, if we don't move more aggressively to, to solving it. I've, I've kind of wrestled with science on the fly and how directly to tackle, approach, discuss climate change. Because the last thing I want to do is to have anybody turn the radio off, so to speak, because they don't want to hear about this. They just want to get out there fishing. And I understand that. But I also understand and feel passionately that we've got to do something about this. And I want, and, and we all want our kids and grandkids and others to have the same kind of opportunities that we've had. And we don't want them to look back on us thinking like, what the hell, you guys, you knew this was coming and you just, you know, partied on. And so it's, uh, so yeah, I've kind of turn the corner on that one. And I, I just want to speak as honestly as I can. And I, it, um, I think the solutions necessarily involve politics, but it shouldn't be partisan. So I, I want to keep partisanship out of this. We're all on the same planet. We're all, you know, if you're in the fly fishing community, you all rely on the same resource. Let's figure out what the challenges are. Let's figure out the solutions. Let's argue about the, the very best policy solutions. And it's totally legitimate for people of different um, partisan persuasions to have different ideas about what the best policy solution is. There are different ones. There are different approaches that one could take, and that's that's the conversation we should have. It's not, in my view, we shouldn't be having the conversation, is climate change real? Um, yes, it's real. We also know what's causing it. It's us. It's burning fossil fuels. It's deforestation. So what do we do about it? Let's have that conversation. What do we do about it? We got to move off fossil fuels. You know, in the big picture of climate change, you don't get there without moving from fossil fuels to something else. That's not easy to do, but we know what those other things are. We can do it. Um, uh, we've got to do it. We've got to move pretty quickly um, to avoid the, the impacts getting a lot worse. We also got to uh, keep forest standing. So deforestation puts a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. It makes it worse. Forests can also pull carbon out of the atmosphere so they can be part of the solution. So, yeah, that's a big part of the work we do at uh, the Woodwell Climate Research Center. It's on the forests of the earth, trying to preserve those that we have, restore those that we can. So, so, so that's another big part of it. We've got to figure out agriculture. That's, that's, we've got to, um, in some places intensify agriculture so that we don't have to open up more land, clear more land, um, for, more farming. Um, this is a tricky one and certainly one that, uh, well, I, I can't claim to be a shining example of, but what you eat makes a big difference. You know, how much land it takes to grow the food that's required to feed us depends on what we're eating. And so if you eat lower on the food chain, it takes less land to grow that food. It takes, and thus there's less pressure for deforestation. So yeah, it's, this is, I think, is these are the conversations that I hope people have. Again, there's all kinds of, uh, there's different solutions that we need to, you know, there's different dials that we can turn. Different parties may have different ideas about what the best dials are. That's that's where the conversation should be, not is this a hoax or like I always, you know, whenever I hear that, it just boggles my mind. And um, for this to be a hoax, it, there's uh, personally, as somebody who's a scientist in this field, it means one of two things. It means I'm either being duped on this, which I don't think I am, or I'm part of, I'm part of it, uh, which I'm not. And 
it also kind of um, makes me chuckle as somebody. So I, I'm the um, acting president here at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. We're about 85 people and scientists are tough. Like to try to lead scientists, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge. And science works actually by people trying to disprove theories of others, you know, it's a little bit of an ornery, contrary crowd like that. So the idea that you're going to get the scientific community to march along in lockstep with some hoax for some reason just isn't going to happen. If you want to become a rich and famous scientist, prove that everybody else is wrong, essentially. So yeah, and, and if you want to be on, you know, if you want to be a famous scientist right now, even if you can't prove it, just say that climate change is a bunch of junk and everyone else is, you know, uh, that, that'll get you some attention. Uh, Anyways, I can't remember very, what your question very was. Very true. But, yeah. <laughs> well, how, how, how can people get involved? Because it obviously, look, there's a lot, there are a lot of conversations that have to happen from yeah. what we're eating to our own footprint. And we can talk about that another time. It's a very overwhelming time right now for people. It, it's such a, you're just such a beacon of light knowing that there is a little bit of something that we can do. How can we help you guys to do something as fun, but as yeah. help, helpful and as collecting samples. Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned that um, we're, we have around 100 volunteers now sampling 300 sites approximately. Um, that's going to grow. We've kind of put the brakes on over the last several months just to not outpace our funding. So part of this is, we, you know, this all costs money. We have to raise more money. But our, vi our, our, our vision, our plan, our goal is to, is to grow and to have the money to support that growth. And when we do that, we'll be able to engage a lot more people, a lot more volunteers out there collecting samples. We want to do that, again, for two reasons. The science will advance faster. We're going to learn more. But we also just, there's great value in engaging this community uh, and and, uh, and and getting them then to talk to their friends and use their means of communication, social media, whatever, to reach a big, bigger audience about the importance of rivers and protecting rivers. And, and, and you do that in some cases by, you know, very local action on your your river and, and that's great you also do that in the bigger picture by protecting our planet which that's also needed so yeah people get this new appreciation for their rivers and their environment by being engaged in the science so we want to be able to support more of that and and yeah that takes kind of raising the money to do it but i'm optimistic about that as well just because there are so many passionate people that want to help so there's yeah there's lots of ways people can help so if I have a secret river somewhere and I want to start collecting that data, is is that just a vanity thing at this point? Or could I actually contact you guys and arrange that? April, you've kind of got the inside track here. So if you have a secret river that you want to collect some samples <laughs> on, you know who to talk to. More broadly, um, on our, go to our website, scienceonthefly.org. There's a page there. I can't remember which page it is, but it's basically get involved. There's a, a form there that you can fill out that says, you know, Hey, here's who I am. And, um, here's what I'd like to do. Here's a, you know, I'd like to get involved sampling or whatever. We ask a few more questions and, um, and send that in and, you know, tell a story about not just collecting the sample, but, um, what it means to you and how you can help kind of spread the word, maybe how you can help fundraise. If that's kind of in your domain, that, that helps out too, because each one of these samples costs like a hundred dollars in terms of. That's my next question, right? Yeah. It's, it's the supplies, it's the shipping. And then the most expensive is kind of the labor that goes into the analysis. So it's not, it's not cheap. This is kind of a $500,000 a year operation that we're running. We're about to hire a advertise for a new position actually that would focus on the sample analysis and, and then, and then the data analysis, which will help us kind of, 
tell more of the stories about the changes that we're seeing and what it means. So, yeah, so it costs, it costs money. Um, a lot of the efforts volunteer. It's not all volunteer. You know, it takes some people working in a lab and then there are just these fixed costs of shipping samples around and buying the supplies. And, and so, so yeah, our hope is, I mean, just to, to keep this thing growing and, and there is a, I think we all feel an urgency uh, to do as much as we can, as fast as we can, to make as much of a difference as quickly as we can. So, um, yeah, it's been fun. As I said, you know, two years ago, we didn't know if this was an idea that would just kind of fizzle and we were the only five people, you know, in the world that would be interested in this. What we've learned over the last five years is, you know, there's a lot of people that are interested and that want to help. And we, we've kind of facilitated, well, we've done what we can with the funding that we have we've grown as fast as we thought we could we don't want to grow too fast and implode but so yeah now a lot of the focus is on how do we raise the funds to help this thing sustain it and grow it and have a bigger impact it would be great if you had some sort of program where somebody could say find a river that they love that you guys haven't documented yet and say all right well i'll pay the 200 dollars to do all of this but then but then how do you prove that that water's from that river? Do they have to go back every year? How does it get transported? I mean, it sounds like a hot mess. No, it's a, that's, that's what we do. That's what we figure out. Um, and, and, and we also need people like you with creative ideas. And that's kind of what fuels this whole thing. That is one we've thought of. We have a sponsor of a river, um, uh, sort of, you know, donor sort. So to sponsor a river, it's $1,200 a year. That's is what we want are 12 samples, roughly monthly. It doesn't have to be exactly. If it's 10 samples, it's fine, you know, but it costs that roughly $1,200 to sample a site over the course of a year. Um, we, we put together all the materials that are required for collecting the samples. So that's bottles and filters and syringes and, and coolers and ice packs to ship them back. We ship that all out to the volunteer who's collecting the samples. They, you know, they do that monthly sampling and it may be they're sampling one site or two sites or three sites or four or five sites even. It depends on what they're interested in and so on. But they'll freeze the samples away. They, you know, once they're filtered, um, you just throw that 60 mil sample into your freezer and it's stable for as long as it stays there. You build up a certain number of samples. Um, maybe it's three months or four months or six months worth of samples. And then you ship those back um, to our us here in, in Woods Hole, where we analyze them in our labs here. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, that's how you get involved, and you know our challenge is just to figure out how to keep paying for it all, so we can keep doing that. Great. Well, geez, we should all be sponsoring rivers. That sounds like a wonderful school program too. You could do that with a family. You could do that with a neighborhood. You could do that with a school. You could do it with a whole community. I mean, really, sky's the limit there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we do have all different kinds of groups. We have some families that are doing it. We have uh, this one guy's just sent like, you know, this grandfather with his grandkids out there and grandkids holding the water samples. And yeah, we love to get, uh, I love it when kids are involved in this. My daughter does it. My son did it. Uh, you know, I was at this weekend with my 12-year-old daughter sampling one of our nearby rivers. So yeah, it's 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 something any, anyone can do. You get this new appreciation for rivers when the data actually start rolling in, you know, like I love it when people get excited about numbers in a spreadsheet and they do when they've been involved in the collection of those, those samples. Yeah. Right. And then we can go to the website to read a lot of this data. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. All the data that we generate are publicly available, so you can get to it. There's a link, you know, on our website um, to the data. We I mentioned that pretty soon we're going to be posting a job ad to hire somebody. So one thing, you know, as we were kind of building this thing, it was a little bit of a proof of concept. Would this actually work? Can we get these samples? Can we keep the, the volunteers engaged? And we've been able to answer yes to all those questions, And but we haven't spent as much time as we want to be able to spend in actually sitting down and analyzing the data that's come in and then sort of telling the stories, whether that's written or whatever form, telling the stories about what we're seeing and then connecting that to policy. So, so yeah, it's, it's exciting to be at the point where we are right now where we can actually go. I think we can, you know, cross my fingers, have the funding to hire somebody and keep them employed who will really focus on that. And, you know, not just the sample analysis, but telling the stories of what the chemistry of the rivers are, are telling us. Right. Exciting times. All right. Well, look, that's a lot of information to sort through and mull over. I'm excited to go through your site a little bit uh, deeper. And like I said, I'll include all of the links. Is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Um, there's a quote I like, and let me see if I can get it right. Sentiment without action is the ruin of the soul. So I think lots of us, whether it's, you know, thinking about the rivers that we're in love with, the fish, the environment, the climate, everything else, we spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, but uh, this quote motivates me to do whatever I can to actually do something about it. And, you know, everyone kind of comes from a different place. But one thing that I think, I think the reason Science on a Fly is caught on and the reason it resonates with so many people is it's a, it's a means of action. It's not just sort of the sentiment, the love of rivers, but actually people can get their hands wet and get their feet dirty and actually do something that's going to help us understand rivers and protect rivers and that that's why it's taken off and that's why yeah that's why we're able to have come as far as we've come in just a couple of years and hopefully kind of keep this thing going for a long time awesome well i'm going to wrap it up right there so thank you very much for coming on the show and um i would love to do a follow-up at some point thanks april it's great talking to you and um yeah be happy to do it again whenever that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I sit down with Skip Morris.